Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 28, and extending to 1 John 3, verse 10. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as He is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God nor is the one who does not love his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, as we come now before your word, having heard it read and with anticipation, now lean into this word, asking you to reveal the truthfulness of its contents, applying this word to our hearts through the power of its truthfulness on the wings of the Spirit. We ask that you would make us attentive to what it is that you have to declare to us. And we ask that you would make us receptive to the nature of this word. And that we would in our reception both believe and obey everything that you have taught us. Thus glorifying you and experiencing the benefits and the blessings that you have stored up for us in this your very word. Humble us now that we might be exalted in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
It was several weeks ago where I was finishing up a class that I get the privilege of teaching here at New College Franklin, a class that focuses on the relationship between the church and the world, between a Christian's engagement as a citizen of heaven, but one whose feet is firmly rooted in the soil of this earth. Love teaching the class, love walking through the truths that we explore together in the midst of that class. And then actually just the week right after that class, I was speaking on this in another venue, same subject, different angle. I was really asking a question, a question that has been asked throughout church history, maybe most famously by the second, third century early church father, Tertullian, who raised the question in one of his writings, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? It's a question that's been asked over and over throughout church history. A question that means to ask, what does the world have to do with the church? And what does the church have to do with the world? Or in Tertullian's day, what does Greek philosophy and Greek wisdom have to do with biblical Christianity and the revelation of of God? It's not an easy answer, is it? It's not always clear exactly how a Christian is to engage in the world in a way that is both in the world, present, but not of the world, derived from the character of this world. How do we live in the time in which God has called us? Well, as we stand on the cusp of a holiday season marked by the festivities that are associated with tomorrow, Halloween, and extending through Christmas, we, we might ask the question this way. It's the same question in the context of holidays. What does Halloween have to do with Christmas? What does a, a holiday that it certainly appears at first glance the world has hold of from at least one 21st century vantage point, the kingdom of the evil one to, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Halloween have to do with Christmas? David Mathis this week wrote on this very subject on the Desiring God website, the ministry of John Piper. Mathis writes this, and I I think it helps us get into where it is the Lord's taking us this morning in 1 John 3. He says the, the reality is Jesus is the one who's haunting Halloween. We have to remember that it is the forces of evil which we are so prone to fear that those same forces of evil are actually terrified of Jesus. Every day he is spooking the devil and his demons Every day Jesus is doing the haunting of the evil one for he has already dealt him a decisive blow and soon he will deal him a final punch. Well, Mathis was really raising the reality of what we see in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus first shows up on the scene post his incarnation. He goes into Samaria and the demons come out 
we might say, out of the woodwork. (laughs) Those who were possessed by the demons, and one man comes up to Jesus, possessed by an evil one, and the evil one speaks through this man. Why are you here, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? He knew. In fact, John knew. We read those very words here in the context of this passage. Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's why I came. In fact, in this passage, we are told through the word appear, which appears four different times in the context of this passage, exactly why it is that Jesus has come and why it is that John is drilling in to this particular truth for these churches in Asia Minor who have just gone through a church split, brought about through the infiltration of false teaching, John here grounding them again in the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to be grounded in the purposes for why Jesus came in the first place. And it's a purpose that has just as much sense on the eve of Halloween as it does on Christmas Eve and any other day of the year. We're given the reasons for Jesus' coming in this text. And I think it'd be important to maybe just underscore the four uses of the word appear in this context to sort of set the stage for where the Lord's going to take us in this passage. I want you to see two times there's a reference to the appearing of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in His first advent in this passage. One time there is a reference to Jesus coming in His second advent in this passage. And a fourth time there is a reference of the word appear that has to do with our personal appearance when Jesus appears the second time. And what I think that you'll see is that Jesus is doing something really important by His first appearing. And He's bringing to completion something that began in His first appearing and His second appearing. And when He appears in His second appearing, something remarkable happening in our appearance. When He appears. I want you to see this, 1 John 3, 5. Look there with me. You know that He, Jesus, appeared... To take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Appeared, past tense, speaking of his first coming. First John 3, 8, that latter half of the verse, we've already read it. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. First advent, it's the reason that he came. But then notice First John 3, 2. The word shows up twice here. Here's both his future appearing and our future appearance in his peering. Look at this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What we will be has not yet become absolutely apparent. But we know that when he appears, future, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Your mind often wonder, what's it going to be like when Jesus returns? What's he going to look like? What are we going to look like in his presence? John says, we don't really know. (laughs) We don't really know. It's not quite clear what that appearing is going to look like. But here's what we know about that appearing. We don't know everything about it, but we know something really important. And that is when he appears, we're going to be like him. And here's how I know we're going to be like him. We're going to see him as he is. 
and the brilliance of His glory and His holiness and His righteousness. Where in every other case in the Scriptures, when His glory shows up, we run into the corners and we ask for the mountains to fall upon us because we can't stand to be in the presence of God's glory because we are sinful human beings. In that moment, we will be like Him and we will bask in the glory of His glory, reflecting it gloriously. He says, I just... We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but we know that much about it. It's going to be absolutely remarkable. Now, I actually think those four instances of the word appear lead us to really three important points that I think John's really trying to, trying to drive home in this passage. It's three points that I think are important for us to really think through today to help us revel again in the joy of what it is that John is trying to show us about Jesus And also be provoked, as we always should, by the word of God, unto the righteousness of which we've been called. These are the three truths. Jesus came to take away the penalty of sin. Jesus came to take away the penalty of sin. Secondly, Jesus came to destroy the power of sin. Jesus came to destroy the power of sin. Thirdly, Jesus is coming to remove the presence of sin. That's that's what's happening in this text. Jesus has come to remove the penalty of sin. Jesus has come to destroy the power of sin. Jesus is coming to remove the presence of sin. And this passage, John is setting those realities before us, and he's calling the church at Asia Minor to see something that has very likely been deeply obscured by the false teaching that's come into their midst. And it might be something that even in our own mind's eye and faith this morning has been obscured. And we need to see the clarity of how the Word of God restores us to a true vision of what Jesus has done in His coming, what He's going to do in His second coming, and what's going to happen to us in the midst of that appearing. So let's take these in turn. First, let's look at Jesus came to take away the penalty of sin. 1 John 3, 5. You know that he appeared, that is Jesus, to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Now we have to ask the question, what does this verse mean if he is to take away sin? Does he mean to say, Take away the entirety of the presence of sin in his first coming? Well, if that was his mission, it didn't work out so well. Um, It's still very much alive in the world, still very much alive in your heart. And it seems quite clear earlier in the text there in verse 3 that that's not going to happen until Jesus' second coming. So it would seem really odd to draw the conclusion that that's what he means by this word, taking away sins. No, what he actually means is what I mean in the point. He's come to take away the penalty of sins. He's come to remove the scourge or the stain of sin that's on our record so that we could then be declared righteous in the sight of God, which is the beautiful reformational truth that was recovered by Martin Luther in the 1500s, which we're celebrating today. Now, why do I think that's the focus of John in this passage? What leads me to that conclusion? What leads me to that conclusion by how it is he defines sin in the context of this passage. How he defines sin in the context of this passage. Look at the previous verse, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
Now, let me just note this, because I think this is important. Sin has multiple definitions in the Scripture. Not contradictory definitions, but complementary definitions, giving different angles and shades on the nature of the way sin is both revealed biblically, but also experienced personally. Take, for instance, Romans 14, 23, the Apostle Paul. For whatever does not proceed from faith... Is sin. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith, anything that you do not in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in God, well, it, it's sin. Romans 14, 23. James 4, 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. If you know what you ought to do, you don't do it. It's sin. But in James, in the context of James 4, there's a bit of a subjectiveness to it. It's to say, I know this, and I know I ought to do it, but not everybody knows it, and maybe not in every context somebody needs to do it, but in my context, and in my circumstances, I need to do it, and if I don't do it, it is sin. It's a violation of conscience. Now, those are two perfectly biblical definitions of sin, but that's not the one that John uses. John focuses on lawlessness. Breaking the commandments of God. He gets down to the very foundational definition of sin. He gets down to the definition of sin most popularized in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Some of you know this. Some of our children, even in the context of this worship service, are memorizing the Shorter Catechism, studying the Shorter Catechism. Probably come to question 14, what is sin? Sin is any... Lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. There it is. Really focusing on the definition that's here in 1 John chapter 3. Conformity unto. Meaning to say, at any point where you don't measure up to the law of God, you've sinned. Or transgression of, anytime you've done expressly against what it is God's commanded, you've sinned. Which means that just about all times and in all places, we're sinning. Right? We tend to think of sin as a moment or an action. But, you know, have you, have you been living fully to the glory of God today? No. You're always abiding in want of conformity or in need of conformity, meaning we're always indebted to the grace of the Lord. We're always indebted. We tend to think, right, oh, I did that bad thing. That was a sin, transgression. But we don't tend to think, I didn't measure up to the standard that I'm called to. And so that really, that's humbling. We're always in need of grace. And here it is, John kind of pressing in that point. Anyone who practices Sin practices lawlessness. It's the breaking of the law. Now, it's very likely that John has in view here Genesis chapter 3. We, we, we will know that, I think, a little later when we look at this works of the devil piece. But I want you to just think about the foundation of original sin that happened in Genesis 3 when the evil one came and tempted Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They certainly didn't act in faith in God, Romans 14, 23. They also certainly knew what to do and didn't do it, James 4, 7. Those are both true. But that's not the focus of Genesis 2. It says God commanded, 
And he said to them, you can eat from any tree of the Garden of Eden except for this one tree that's in the midst of the garden. I put a posted sign, no transgression here. Here's your boundary marker. Don't eat of this one. And it's that one that they wind up eating of, which again was expressly against the commandment of God. It was lawless, the action that they took. What that means is, because they broke a law, there is a consequence. That's the focus. When you break a law, you get a traffic ticket, there's a consequence. There's a, there's a payment. There's something that must be meted out in order to establish justice. He says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Dying is the consequence for the sinfulness. It is the penalty for the violation of the law. And the Apostle Paul tells us it's not just eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's, it's any time that we have broken the law. In fact, he tells us in Romans that if we break one law, it's as if we've broken them all. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. If you have sinned, the consequence of that sin is death. The focus of the text is on lawlessness, the breaking of law, the consequences that come from the breaking of that law. And so justice has to be served. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to take away sins. He came to stand in your place, to be your substitute. We're told in 1 Peter 2.24 that he bore our transgressions, lawlessness. He bore our transgressions on the cross. That's what he did. He stood in our place. He is, as John says earlier in the book of John, he is our advocate. He's the one now who stands in for us and he receives the penalty for us. Why? Because he surely died. On our behalf. Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This... John is showing us it's the reason that Jesus came. He says it's the reason for Christmas. It's the reason for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he desired to take your place so that you could take his place and receive the full righteousness that he won for you having paid the full justice of what it is that you absolutely deserve. Because that's the reason Jesus came. He came to take away sins. Now that should be incredibly comforting. And it actually maybe should raise a question. Why is it that Jesus. Why is it that Jesus is qualified to do this? And John. In case we had that question in our mind. John says. Because in him there was no sin. No penalty of sin. Was on his record. So he was equipped to take on the penalty of sin that was not his own on your behalf because he wouldn't carry in a sinful load himself. 
He was absolutely not guilty, fully righteous, and thus he was, could be a faithful recipient of our unrighteousness credited to his account. And Jesus is qualified. He was able to do this. So Jesus bore our sin. He came to take away the penalty of our sin. This was the rich truth that was revealed in crystal clear exposition through Martin Luther, later even John Calvin and the successors of the Reformation that we are a people who don't have to earn our way into heaven through our good deeds, but that we are a people based upon the work of Christ alone who have now received the righteousness of God through what Christ has won for us on the cross, we can with utter confidence come into the presence of the Lord and know that His banner over us is love because of what Jesus has done. That's what we have in Christ. And that John wants us to remember, he wants to press upon us. It's absolutely critical that we understand why Jesus came. But he says, secondly, Jesus came to destroy the power of sin. Now this is verse 8. This is verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. This is the power of sin. I don't know if you've noticed this, but you, you need the penalty of sin removed from you because you can't pay it and live. So if Jesus removes the penalty of sin from you, that's... It's amazingly freeing because you now know, even though you're still sinning, still struggling with sins, we're going to get to, Jesus has paid for that sin, and this allows you to go to him confidently and know that you're free and to pursue the righteousness that is now found in, in him. That's a great way to live. You're not under the cloud of guilt. But you also need freedom from the power of sin. You also need freedom from the power of sin. This also is why Jesus came. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And I'd like to argue that the primary work of the devil is sin. I think I can argue that from this passage. Look at the beginning of verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Why, John? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He seems to connect the work of sinning and the devil as the reason for why sin exists. It's the power behind sin. Now this makes complete historical and biblical sense. You ever wondered where does sin come from? Well, actually, John's telling us here, it says sin came from the devil. The evil one. He has been sinning from the beginning. How is that, John? Revelation 12. Revelation 12, John in the revelation that he gives to us, teaches us that it was Lucifer, that great high angel, who led a coup of other angels up to a third of the angelic host in a rebellion against God, who sought in pride to replace and usurp the presence of God in heaven. And we are told that God rejects and stymies that rebellion and ultimately throws Lucifer out of heaven with the angels who become, again, the fallen angels that are mentioned there in Revelation chapter 12. So we know from the very beginning, the evil one was the instigator 
of sin. He then fell and he shows up in Genesis chapter 3. And there in the garden, what is he doing? He's insinuating, he's instigating, he's originating sin, seeking to spoil the holy good and the holy upright creation of which God has made. And he does it very similarly by appealing to Adam and Eve to try to replace the presence of God. You will be like God, which is what he had sought to do in his rebellion in heaven, as Revelation 12 teaches us. He had sought to usurp the place of God, and now he's appealing to Adam and Eve and saying, you too can be like God. You too can take the place of God. And this impulse towards idolatry, this impulse towards replacing God, taking the place of God, arises out of the evil one. He's the one who's been doing this from the beginning. When Jesus comes, he's come for the purpose of destroying the work of the devil. To undo the power of the devil. How do we know that? Well, it's prophesied in Genesis 3.15. You remember this first telling of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that comes through Moses in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember these words. This is God speaking to Satan, the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Shadowy language. Metaphorical imagery given us here in Genesis 3.15, but one that becomes clear throughout the pages of Scripture that this is a picture of the cross itself. Jesus has come to deal a death blow to the evil one, crush his head. Will Jesus get wounded in the meantime? Oh, yes, he will. He will be crucified on the cross. He will be wounded upon the heel, but his wound will not lead to utter mortality and death because his wound ultimately will be overcome in the resurrection of which he will be triumphing, as Paul tells us in Colossians 3, over the powers and principalities and the authorities of the heavenly realm, speaking of the powers of darkness. That's what Jesus has done. He has come and he has already brought the destruction, he's laid, as Mathis put it, a fatal blow upon the evil one, and his final punch is coming soon. So much so that the writer of Hebrews can put it this way, through death, he, speaking of Jesus, destroyed the one whose power was of death. That is the devil. And he delivers those, speaking of us, out of the fear of death, who were subject to his slavery. That's what Jesus has done. And that's a reality that's actually in us right now. A reality of Jesus' power over sin. The reality of Jesus' removal of our penalty. That's a status and a power and a reality that actually dwells within us. Let me show you why. Notice what he says here in verse 9. It's actually a very difficult verse. He says, no one born of God, same language that he's been using since verse 29 of the previous chapter, no one born of God, speaking of regeneration, speaking of new life, 
new creature in Christ, makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God. Now this phrase, God's seed, is a, what's an interesting phrase? It's an interesting phrase that I, I believe, genuinely believe, John is meaning two things in the use of that language. I've just referenced Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman is going to crush the seed of the serpent. Now he's saying God's seed is is in you, it abides in you. What's he speaking? The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ abides in you. The, the Spirit that crushed the power of the serpent, the, the, the Spirit that is paid for the penalty of your sin, it now abides in you. That's why you can't keep on sinning. There's no way. If you are run by the power of the Spirit of God's seed within you, you're going to continue to practice sinning. But I think he also means this that we have in a very real sense the life of God within us. It is through the presence of Christ, but it is a new life. We have a seed. We have a seed that's been planted in our hearts. And this seed is one that is bringing forth growth and life and fruit that comes out of God. Fruit that's not of us, or of the evil one, the fruit that comes out of the seed that God has planted in our hearts. He says, I want you to know that you have destroyed the works of the devil and I put a new power at work in you. It's the power of God's seed that's now at work in you. And so you're not going to continue to practice that which is unrighteous. You're going to continue to now walk in the way that is in keeping with that seed. You know, you don't plant an apple seed and get a pear tree. You know, you don't, you don't plant potatoes and carrots grow. He's saying, if I've planted God's seed in you, God, things come out. New life comes out. New changes come out. In fact, I think it's not too strong to say, John would say the thought that you can be changed by God and have the penalty of sin removed. You can have the life of God in you dwelling through the power of the Holy Spirit. You are going to a place where the presence of sin will be utterly eradicated from your heart. But in the meantime, it doesn't really matter how you live. I think for John, that would be like blasphemy. Uh, let, me, let me put it in, a, in what will, a, will come across as almost blasphemous. Yeah, I have God dwelling within me, but he's not making a difference. You see the utter ridiculousness of that? The God who spoke creation into being by the word of his power, the, the God who upholds the heavens and the earth by the word of his power, who sustains us even right now in this room, dwells within you through the power of the resurrection, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells with you. Yeah, it just has not made much of a difference. John said, it's impossible. You don't know the Lord, that's you. You've never been born of him, if that's you. John Stott said in his commentary that the seed of God, as it grows within us, is the indication that the impulse and the trajectory of one's life is inescapably towards holiness. Because that's what the seed of God produces. It produces in the direction of Jesus. Only someone who is not under the 
power of sin will be able to break the power of sin. Only someone who is not under the penalty of sin is able to pay for the penalty of our sin. And only someone in whom there is no sin is able to eradicate the sin that's in us. And that's ultimately where this passage goes. Jesus came to remove utterly the presence of sin. Now I want you to, I want you to see this at the beginning of 1 John 3 and then I want to simply make a comment in closing. John is blown away at the love of, at the love of God in this passage. That's really the focus of this passage. If you look at 1 John 3, notice, see what kind of love, or literally, see how great the love is that the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Now, let me just, you know, a little birds and bees test here. How, is, how are children made? We don't have to go into detail. But they're made through seed. They're made through seed. The love of God, the love of God produces seeds that grow up to be children of God. That's the picture here. It's the love of God that's been poured into us as a seed. It's growing up. And that happened in the moment of conversion where we became children of God. And then we grow up as those children with the DNA of the parent. What's the DNA of the parent? It's the Father's love. It's going to grow in us. We have the DNA of God within us. He says, verse 2, Beloved, that's who we are. We have God's DNA within us. We are God's children. And then he says, What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Friends, that's where, we're, that's where we're going. That's where we're going. I want to ask you something. Is there anything more that you desire in life than to be quit of sin? Is there anything? There's nothing, there's nothing I can imagine that would be more glorious than being quit of sin and being in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I know that's what I've been designed to be. And... He says here, the person who knows that Jesus is taking you to that place where there's no presence of sin in your life, that person sets their hope on that. And by setting their hope on that, pursues purity. Pursues purity. Look at verse 4, verse 3. Everyone who thus hopes in Him, who? Jesus purifies himself as he is pure. Purifies himself as he is pure. Here's how that works. The more that you can, with your mind's eye, see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what has he done, and what is going to happen when he returns, which is the glorious appearing of him in the fullness of all that he is and has done. And we, reflecting back to him, the glory that is his, that he's bestowed upon us, in perfect unity, in absolute love, everything made right as it was originally designed to be. That's where we're headed. As you dwell on that, as you hope in that, as you put every egg in that basket, what it is you will do 
is you will purify yourself now, setting your hope on then. Why? Why won't you just say, oh, that'll be great. Whew. Guess I'll just wait for that day. Not much I can do now. I'm pretty messed up. Got a lot of issues. Can't seem to overcome them. I'm just going to kick back. Kind of wait for Jesus to come. It's going to be great when he, when he comes. Why is that not the response? Why is the response that you set your hope on that and you purify yourself? Here's why. The Christian who is truly a Christian so knows that his joy and fulfillment and the glory and the beauty of Christ is found in Christ being more made in us and experiencing more of the purity of which we are destined for at his return, that we are unsatisfied to simply lay back on our laurels until that happens. We seek heaven now by seeking the purity of ourselves in Christ. We seek it now. We say to ourselves, I can't wait till Jesus comes, but I want to experience as much of Jesus as I can now. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to seek purity because that's where Jesus is found. That's where the joy of who Jesus is is found in the righteousness that he's already gifted to me. More and more realized in my heart and my soul, what happens is a little bit of heaven shows up. Now, and you can't imagine not pursuing a little bit of heaven that you can have now in Christ for what you will have then. That's a heart that's been captured by Jesus. Rather than a heart that says, oh, that just sounds hard. That just sounds difficult. See, that's not a heart that has hope. That's not a heart that set its hope on Jesus. The one that set its hope in Jesus is, in a sense, pulling by their pursuit of purity, in a sense, think of it metaphorically, in a sense, pulling Jesus into the present. Experiencing moments of his presence powerfully through pursuing righteousness, which is he who is holy. That's what John is saying. Now, it's likely the Gnostic teachers of the day were saying something like, hey, as long as you believe these things in your mind, it really doesn't matter what you do with your body or how you live. As long as you just believe these things. You know, there is a kind of teaching of grace that's not biblical that says, hey, you know, you've been saved. Don't worry about having to pursue righteousness much anymore. You've just been saved. No, no, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. When you've received the grace of the Lord and so astonished by the love, see what great love the Father has given to us. Therefore, don't worry. No, purify yourself in Him. He, there's no... There's no distance in John's mind between those two those two were those are woven together as one because you know that as you walk in the righteousness that is Christ and the joy of the Lord overtakes you in the love of God you can't imagine living on anything else that's where life really is found that's what John's calling us to so for those of you who are still living in false guilt that is you still mull over in your mind all of the sins that Jesus has already paid for, but you're still hold, being held back by them because you've never really felt and rested and relaxed in the arms of Jesus who has saved you. You're not yet believing to the degree that Jesus would want you to, that he has removed the penalty of your sin. Don't try to self-flagellate to somehow or another pay for what he's already paid for. For those of you who are stuck in sin and your internal narrative is, I can never 
I can never overcome it anymore. Don't, don't neglect the power of the work of the devil that's been broken in this world. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Jesus has broken the works of the devil. The power is given to you. The Spirit rests in you through the gospel. But for those of us who are kind of relaxing on our laurels and are not seeking to purify ourselves as He is pure, setting our hope on Him, He challenges us today. And He says, I want you to behold me. And if you think some pleasure is going to come through some practice of sinfulness that's become habitual in your life, you're actually eroding the eternal joy that I want you to experience now. And you know this. I'm just going to appeal to your experience. The more you're gluttoned with the things of this world and the more you let your mind stray into sins of this world, the more you conduct your body with regards to sins of the world, does your satisfaction and contentment level rise? No, it doesn't. You think it does, but it doesn't. But the more you pursue what is right, the more you pursue what is holy, the more you pursue who Christ is, you think, oh, that's going to be so hard. And you do it, and it is difficult. It requires godly effort. But as you do, does your contentment and joy rise? Absolutely it does. Because you're beginning to experience the presence of God now. You're having, as it were, a little bit of the second coming now by His Spirit. And it's preparing you for the actual second coming when he presents himself in glory and he glorifies you. Friends, listen, I'm straining to, to make this understandable, believable, and what I do pray, beautiful before your eyes because I think we as a community have got to help each other see these things and stay in these things because there are too many things in a community like our own that's seeking to rob you of the purification and the glory that comes in following Jesus and is tantalizing you like the devil did Adam and Eve with things that will never satisfy and don't glorify. And it's in committing yourself to the ways of Christ that is the portal of joy and glory. It'll take some effort. But the effort is worth the price for the joy that lays before you for He endured the cross and he despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. Will you endure the pursuit of righteousness for the joy that is set before you, for the joy that you'll experience now? Will you walk in Christ? Those of you who are born of him, children of God. Let's strive together as a community to be these people. The Lord might present to us the way of his love. And that as we wake up on Sunday mornings, as we meet each other during the week, we're in a sense looking in each other's eyes and we're saying, see what love the Father has given to us. You are a child of God. And helping each other see it and revel in it and then grow into what it means being a child of God. My father used to say, Nate, don't forget you're a Sheridan. All right? He, this usually meant when I was going out of town or leaving his presence for a period of time, I don't want you to forget who you are. God is saying to us, don't forget who you are. It's not a threat. 
Don't forget who you are. Walk in the joy of your master. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, grow us up in this. Grow us up in this truth. Continue to conform us into your image. Make us alive in Jesus. For those of us in here who don't know you, today is the day where your gospel is set forward in our hearts and our minds. Would you be so pleased to plant God's seed, Christ, in them? For those who have not tended the soil of the seed that's within them and have suffered in the bearing of fruit and there's weakness and being connected to the vine, would you today till that soil? Would you through the Spirit give them the nutrients that's needed for the purification pursuit that you have called us to because you, you're ensuring our joy in this life? Would you, would you make that plain today? And would you, Father, together lock us as arms in a community that is willing to not let each other go and to help pick each other up when we fall along this path and forget our way. Lord, you know that's going to happen. So we pray for it ahead of time. Go ahead and lay the foundations for that kind of community to be built more and more here at Cornerstone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.